What is up? Welcome to Forefront 360, a podcast where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. Uh, I'm your host, Cody Schweikert. I am in the studio today with Nate Mancini and Rich Chrisman. Gentlemen, how, how are we doing today? You boys are uh, fresh off a very long hike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard had an abundant meal. He's in a food coma. And we're here. It's the evening. It's a it's a beautiful evening. Yeah, we uh, we went on a hike. Uh, we did not ascend a mountain like Frodo Baggins. We did see a waterfall, uh, not unlike the one near the Forbidden Pool. Oh wow! But um, it was a good time. I love how you teased the episode uh, in that. Thank you, man. You're a professional. Thank you. Yeah, I try to I try to tease, not spoil. Mm, good, good pocket. Rich, how you doing, buddy? You upright? You're still upright. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I had a good walk and uh, and I had a good meal and uh, now I'm about to record a good podcast. Okay, all good. Let's do it. Um, so yeah, today uh, we are we got a special episode today. It's uh, involves uh, fantasy stories. Uh, so we will hmm. be uh, climbing aboard the Millennium Falcon on our way to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, so that we can return a ring back to Mordor. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be action packed. It's big. There's a lot. To, there's a lot to <laughs> handle here. Uh, it's a, we're calling it the fantasy special because we're gonna highlight three of the most popular stories of the last fifty years. Mm. Uh, Lord of the Rings is a little older than fifty years, but uh, they're mm-hmm. big stories, right? And we're gonna debate which one is superior. I, Cody, will be representing Star Wars. Rich is gonna handle Harry Potter, Harry Potter, and Nate is going to defend the Lord of the Rings. Indeed. Indeed you are. Uh, why are we doing this? Uh, is this just, are we just trying to justify talking about some great popular stories that we love? Well, yes. I mean. And, and no. From a certain point of view, uh, you could say that. But uh, we feel this is justified. We're going to argue which story is superior. And we're doing so in light of something we believe wholeheartedly here about Forefront, uh, ab- about stories. So uh, the most compelling stories are echoes of the great story God is telling in history. So we're going to point out gospel themes and biblical parallels and try to argue that our story is the richest text. So expect lots of really bad puns Mm. and uh, excessive nerddom. Is that a word? Nerddom? Sure. Sure. Geekery? Yeah. And uh, The geek shall inherit the earth. The geekery. (laughs) Okay. Uh, maybe even a little bit of wisdom make it crop up accidentally uh, in this episode. But uh, the, here's the structure. Here's how the structure of this show is going to work. Uh, we're going to present our case and findings before the others. Uh, they're going to respond with just affirmations or challenges. Mm. And uh, then we're going to wrap the story with closing thoughts. After we do that for each of the three stories, uh, we're going to lay down our lightsabers slash wands slash swords and have an open discussion about what we think is the best story. We're going to try to come to, we're going to be gentlemen. We're going to try to come to an agreement. And uh, Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to start. We're going to go, the order is here, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all right? So so let me just ask a clarifying question here, Cody. Go so ahead. Go ahead. So you're saying we're going to argue about which is the superior story, and then you said something about you know gospel themes and connections. So are you saying that the story that has the clearest connection to the gospel is automatically the superior, better story? Or are you saying that, well... There's kind of some mix and match here that maybe one might not have as clear connection, but it's still better. What, what's your what's your take on this? So I'm glad you asked this question. Uh, 
you you may uh, listeners acknowledge uh, notice that we've there's a significant omission here, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The Chronicles of Narnia, for example, is a beloved story. We all love this story, indeed. And uh, it is a pretty pretty direct uh, parable of of the gospel, right? Picture of the gospel. We got Aslan, this very obvious Christ figure. Uh, but we decided so you're this, saying Aslan is Jesus. I am. I mean, by another name. Yeah, uh, by another name. We had a we had a, a blog entry recently that implied that as well. Interesting. Mm, all right, it's all tying together. Continue. Uh, thank you, Ryan Diaz. So yes, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah, that's the, so we were like, you know what? This one's really obvious though. This is just very much an allegory of like the gospel. So uh, that one was not subtle enough, mm-hmm. and it's also not quite as popular as these other three stories. It's from a purely, uh, you know franchise merchandise financial perspective mm. uh but these three stories we have mass appeal uh what's gonna what's the what's the uh criteria that we're evaluating these stories on well uh are they the most what's the most beautifully constructed story and we're you we're kind of analyzing that in light of uh the gospel right the best story ever told sure. uh, the characters in the gospel are infinitely rich and complex the plot is uh well constructed, right? There's uh, four phases in that, and uh, we've got imagery, we've got symbolism, we've got foreshadow. The Bible is the greatest story. We actually have a episode that's probably at least at this point has been released already. I hope uh, about the Bible as a story in literature. Um, actually, this might be a good companion piece, a little follow up, a little build up. Sure. Anyway, yeah, I'm convinced the Bible is the greatest story ever told, and so uh, which one, which one of these three stories uh, hits the mark the closest? Uh, nice. Yeah, I, I don't know, boys. I think we're gonna have to flesh this out at the end. I'm gonna start, boys. So there is uh, a little story called Star Wars. All right, it's an epic space opera. We still don't know why it counts as an opera. Our friend Zach, mm-hmm. who has got like a doctorate in music, uh, it doesn't believe that it's an opera yeah i think you've got to have like alternate terminology for all these things right so the so star wars is a space opera lord of the rings is an epic romance right we just we just gotta have words just words that we can just describe these things that people don't understand we need to feel important and Mm -hmm. and superior right so yeah i'm gonna call it an epic space opera it's job security so the definition of that is apparently space opera is a subgenre of science fiction that emphasizes and is part of the general thematic genre science fiction space warfare with use of melodramatic risk-taking space adventures and chivalric romance. Mm, you hear that, mm. Zach? You hear that, Zach? Not talking about music, all right? It does. Let Although in- there is really good music in yes, Star Wars. There really is good music. music. I didn't even think to mention that. Something uh, that connects your and my franchise. No. Oh. The same composer behind both. Working in the shadows all along. Um... Look, we're not going to be able to... Uh, we're scratching the surface with these three stories. They're rich texts. Each one of them are uh, incredibly beautiful and important and deep, and there's lots to talk about, and we're not going to be able to hit everything. Uh, I, we have no idea how long this episode's going to be. Um, the manager of this studio is probably going to kick us out. Let's get rolling. So, Star Wars. I'm going to represent Star Wars. I'm going to approach this story as the Skywalker saga. I'm going to especially emphasize uh, the first six movies. Uh, the original trilogy and the prequels. Okay, what Richard is freaking out already? What's happening? <laughs> well, I mean, the first six movies were not the Skywalker saga. That's the the name they gave to it after they created those but those three subsequent 
quote unquote films. I <laughs> wow, okay. So ironically, they are the most Skywalker saga y though, right? They are they are the story I think. I'm I'm looking at this. I read those movies as the story of Anakin Skywalker. Sure. Luke is mm. great and important, right? But this is I'm I'm looking at Anakin Skywalker. Uh, so I and I know the spin off movies are not founded on Anakin's character arc, but his presence looms large over all of them, okay? And even into the, the newest trilogy, which I will talk shockingly little about in this uh, few minutes that I have, okay? Um, but boys, I'm not the first person to notice the, the virgin birth and the parallels of Anakin to Jesus, right? I'm not the first person, but uh, I revisited this, no. this parallel uh, recently, as in two hours ago when I was preparing for this podcast, and uh, I, I saw some things that I hadn't really noticed before. It's quite shocking how, uh, how, how, how rich this parallel is. So here's Anakin's character arc. He's a chosen one discovered in obscure poverty. Okay. I think Bethlehem people uh, prophesied about. Uh, born of a virgin, uh, Mary, right? Uh, we don't know that Shmi was a virgin necessarily. We know that there was no father. But we don't, beyond that, we don't know. But uh, conceived by the force, the spirit, mysterious power, right? Uh, is tempted by evil. Anakin and Jesus both tempted by evil. Descends into darkness. Both of them do. Rises from the dead. Yeah, he does. Does Darth Vader not rise from the dead? Does Anakin not rise from the ashes of Darth From a Vader? certain point of view. <laughs> I, will, I will argue such. Brings life and balance. So you've got... Uh, chosen one is discovered in obscure poverty, born of a virgin, tempted by evil, descends into darkness, rises from the dead, and brings life and balance. Starts an empire, kills a bunch of people. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> hold on now. Uh, so check this out. We've got uh, you, you've got this passage in Romans five. All right, uh, Romans five. Uh, it, that's where we get the you know Adam and Jesus comparison. So uh, Adam's trespass brought death to all, but Christ. Uh, Christ's sacrifice brought life to all, right? This this rich comparison of uh, Adam and, and Jesus. So I'm noticing that Anakin is really the personification of that in one person, right? Because he's not perfect, but he is he's the savior in this story, right? So let me let me flesh this out with you. Anakin is the chosen one that fell. Adam, from a certain point of view was uh, the chosen one that fell. Both were appointed by high, high power to do great things, and they mishandled that responsibility, uh, resulting in the death of many, right? Adam brought the curse, the curse of sin throughout all humanity. In Anakin's execution of the Jedi, Order 66, we've got younglings killing. And so don't, don't forget, he didn't just kill the men, but the women and the children too, right? That did happen. Uh, why did this happen? Why did they do this? What was their motivation? They were trying to gain more life, right? Adam thought that he was uh, missing out by not being able to eat the fruit. I will mention Eve here as well. She was, she was there. But Romans 5 is talking about Adam. Uh, so they're trying to gain life. Uh, why does Anakin descend into darkness? Class? Why does, he, why does he need the emperor? He's afraid of losing the thing he loves most. He's afraid of losing? He's trying True to love. save life, right? What does Jesus say? He said... If you try to find life, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it, right? Which eventually, of course, he did. So you've got uh, you've got the Savior uh, in Yoda, right? Let's let's call Yoda a prof, a prophetic figure in the story. Tells us that uh, we must uh, train ourselves to 
let, let go, go. Of everything, everything we you fear, fear to lose. lose. Thank yeah, you, Rich. He's about as old as Methuselah, too. <laughs> he's very, he's quite old. In 900 years, you are. Look this, this good. good. You will not. You will not. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Jesus comes along as the true and better Adam. His sacrifice brings life to many. In Star Wars, Anakin's ultimate redemption from the dark side costs him his life. But it brings life. It ends the war. and brings balance to the Force. Uh, though Anakin's descent happens because the evil pride within him, both Jesus and Anakin descend into hell. Now, I don't want to make that statement as like a... Uh, I'm not arguing about did Jesus actually go to literal hell. That's a theological controversy I don't need to dip into. That's but another podcast. That's for another time. But they both descend into hell. Nowhere this imagery is more clear than... Uh, we, we, we can see right now, if we close our eyes, the limbless Anakin Skywalker screaming hatred at Obi-Wan on the fiery lava bank river bed of Mustafar, right? Uh, the scorching skin... Uh, this is this is hell, right? He's descended. He's gone. This is like uh, Al Pacino, right? In The Godfather, Michael Corleone. He's totally gone. But is he? Is there still life in him? Apparently. Apparently there is. Luke uh, thought there was still good in him. There, and there was. Because ultimately it was <laughs> compassion for his child that resurrected Anakin Skywalker from the dead. Uh, we ask, Luke, isn't Luke talking to Obi-Wan? And he's like, uh, isn't there still good in him? I sense it. Obi-Wan's like... Uh, Anakin Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker's dead, bro. He's he's more machine than man now. He's dead. He was murdered and betrayed by Darth Vader, right? But was he? Obi Wan wrong. A prophecy misread could have been because it is Anakin Skywalker that uh, comes back from the the death that is Darth Vader that nearly consumed him, but there was that still small voice right in in his head. And uh, he's watching his son get electrocuted by some freaky force lightning out of the Palpatine's fingers. And uh, he's looking. And you can see the conflict on his face, even though he's wearing a helmet. I feel mm-hmm. like that's such a beautiful shot, right, in Return of the Jedi, where I feel like you could see his facial expression. It is. Maybe it's just because he's turning his head and, like, looking at That's all <laughs> that he can sh- express, turning his head. Because they, there's no- they could do a whole series about a guy who just wears a helmet the whole time. <laughs> they, look, they did. Um and so it's compassion, just like Jesus was compelled to give his life out of compassion and love. So, uh, boys, that's that's what I got. I want to hear from you guys if I'm missing anything. That I'm sure there's a lot that I'm missing. But I've, I have always found the most compelling. Once I started watching, once I saw Revenge of the Sith, as even as a little kid, I was like, this is not Luke's story. Luke Skywalker is, like, the most popular. He's the protagonist, I think, right, of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Darth Vader's more iconic, but Luke Skywalker is the protagonist. But to me, after watching the prequel trilogy, this is Anakin's story, man. He was the chosen one. And I once got in a debate with a guy who said that uh, Luke was the chosen one that brought balance to the Force. I'm like, no way, bro. No way. Uh, Trent, if you're listening, you're still wrong about that, bro. Okay. Um, Boys, Star Wars smuggles the gospel into the unknown hearts of millions of fans. All right. Uh, And and it's, it's done as skillfully as Han Solo smuggling coaxium. All right. None of your stories can do this. Uh, they're great stories. They're good stories. But the mass appeal of Star Wars, uh, What's the, who's the most important person in the Bible? Jesus Christ, right? Who's the most important person in, in Star Wars? Anakin Skywalker. All right. George Lucas knew where his priorities were. I'm sure that he did this all very purposefully, and he wouldn't disagree with a word I've said. And uh, with that, I'm going to rest my case and open up the floor is, for... Especially, <laughs> you know, just rich after his... Very recent statement that his favorite character in all Star Wars is Jar Jar Binks. 
<laughs> it okay. really like adds a lot. Okay, of maybe so. Binks was the chosen one. <laughs> so I'm not helping my case by mentioning George Lucas. Okay, but uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But uh, boys, what what did I miss? What do we see? There's also some bit there I saw recently. I was watching Revenge of the Sith. You know when Padme is losing the will to live, mm-hmm. right? And she's crying. I was thinking of uh, Jeremiah uh, referencing Rachel's tears, right? Jacob's wife, Rachel, her tears that her children were dying, right? And uh, God, God, through Jeremiah says, you know, don't weep uh, for, you know, your children will be brought back and they'll be saved ultimately, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this woman who she's dying, right? And she's fearful for her chil- her children. The person she loves most is totally gone and dead and betrayed her. And uh, ultimately, it's it's Luke and Leia that uh, play a pivotal role in the redemption of this tragedy. So mm-hmm. I I think there's something there. Uh, what else am I missing? Jar Jar Binks. Uh, what what character from the Bible are we? Can we? Is there a parallel there? No. Oof. Well, he's a fool. Uh, <laughs> Judas, Judas, certainly, Judas. Certainly, a lot of fools talked about in Proverbs. Um, there we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certainly one thing you were talking about. Uh, you know, Anakin sacrificing, making the sacrifice to kind of destroy evil at the end. I feel like that sacrifice and, and that that act would have been a lot more powerful and and meaningful if uh, the evil guy that he threw down the shaft hadn't just come right back in the next series, which is why I imagine you're focusing on the first six episodes <laughs> rather than venture, yeah, venturing not, not into to mention, the next. Thing. Yeah, not to mention the next three episodes, which have ver- virtually nothing to do with Anakin Skywalker that, at all. That new trilogy doesn't uh, yeah, doesn't, doesn't count. Yeah. Um, I need something more real. <laughs> it's, it's, ap- it's apocryphal. All right. Yeah. No, and they, I, I you agree. know why they did that. You I know can, why they made those. Only money. <laughs> Only money. Anyway, I uh, no, I can, I am willing to accept that we are discussing uh, the the original six here. I mm-hmm. think that's that's Thank fair. You. I do yes. think that the um, thematic arcs of the first six are a bit skewed in the in the sequel trilogy, and I don't even mean that as a knock. I just think it's a, it's just a fact that like some of the themes are uh, kind of shot through a prism a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in that one. But that aside, I got an affirmation and a counter. Okay, okay, but okay. here's an affirmation. So, um, I am also a very big Star Wars fan, um, and the I, I'm surprised you went the route that you did because I certainly see and agree with you on the redemptive nature of the arc of Anakin's story. Um, I've never seen other than the Virgin Birth bit. I've never really seen Anakin as like a Christ parallel probably because he is such a flawed person, like mm-hmm. deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. And because like I see Christ as so not flawed, it's hard me for too. me to make that that comparison right. between them. I see where yeah. you're coming from though. Um, but I just like to add into the mix. Um, while this is not directly a, a gospel, meaning like a good news thing, um, I've always found a lot of parallels between the Star Wars story and the reality as shown in the Bible in the topic of just um, kind of the battle between good and evil, like the right. ultimate battle between good and evil, uh, and uh, particularly seen in the resistance of temptation. Mm-hmm. So I think the most, so to me, like if you were to ask me, what is the most strong biblical theme in Star Wars? My answer would have been the struggle against the dark side. The seduction. And yeah, the, and yeah. the fact that small sins, though they wouldn't call them sins in the Star Wars universe, but small 
um, giving in to these temptations Mm -hmm. very quickly will pull you down a path that you can, that is almost impossible to come back from. Mm -hmm. And the, um, I think the most powerful scene in all star Wars is the throne room in episode six, when Luke has, uh, cut off Vader's. Yeah. Arms, yeah. yeah okay, that made me see. Yeah, and then when he uh, decides, and the the he has given in to to the anger, yeah, just yeah, as yeah. the the Satan figure has asked him or to scene. do, and when yeah. he effectively gives up his own life by throwing away his weapon, I'll never turn to and saying tosses yeah, away his lightsaber. I'll, yeah, I am a Jedi like my father before me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I I am like yeah. the the idea that the best resistance that Luke could have to evil, no pun intended about the resistance, um, the, the best resistance that Luke could have against evil is not by striking down the evil in anger. Yeah. It's by casting his weapon his down own life, his own and saying, I will not join you. I will not do that. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because you, you've ever been in this moment where you're tempted for whatever it is, right? And you feel the conflict within you, right? Literally. And you're, you're, you're wrestling with this, and you're saying, God, help me. God, help me deliver me from this. But you, it, the, the temptation is so powerful. And Satan and says. And you literally, like, you, you realize that you're walking, you're taking steps toward whatever sin this is, right? Mm-hmm. And then you stop, and you we've all looked like Luke at some point and been like, what am I doing? Like, and you throw the lightsaber, yeah. right? Whatever that is. But yeah. And the deceiver says, you have hate. You have <laughs> anger. But you, but you don't use them. <laughs> Indeed. I think that is a really powerful... Uh, motif in in Star Wars overall, even if you do include some of the later movies, I mean, just this idea of I'm not going to fight, but I'm actually going to have like victory through this quiet strength, um, and that that's something that Luke kind of exemplifies in in Episode Six and even later in Episode Eight, uh, that that he's not just running in with a laser sword and cutting down all the enemies. Mm-hmm. But but instead he is just standing there resolutely, you know, um, giving his friends the time they need, and that and, that's and whether purposefully or not, uh, in both Luke's climactic scenes in both of those trilogies, he puts himself in a position to die sacrificially. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So he yeah he he maybe has more of a, a positive sacrificial death motif even than, than Anakin does in some ways um, in, in some of those sequences. But, um, and it's interesting that in, in kind of the earlier films in, in the prequel trilogy, you see the Jedi kind of taking on this warrior mentality of, of, Oh, we're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. But then all of a sudden they become soldiers. And now, now, now we have the generals and now we have this clone army and we got to fight, fight, fight. And it's almost like they kind of lose the core of what they are. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's a fantastic, it could have been better. Yeah, I think there's a fantastic parallel. And this is really getting in the weeds here. Go ahead. But I think there's a fantastic parallel being made, perhaps purposefully, by Lucas in the prequel trilogy with the Jedi becoming clouded by their own pride and their own uh, power and the, the immediacy mm. of them needing to defeat this this physical evil, um, I think that parallels really well with many points in the history of the church. Mm. You know, the, the, and you know, I won't go into it, but like I, there have been many times that I've been reading about church history and being someone who, unfortunately it should be the other way around, but being someone who has been 
surrounded by Star Wars lore since I was a tiny child. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times I when I'm learning about our actual history, I'm like, oh, that's like in Star Wars when this happened. You know, and I think that there's uh there's something to be said there too, that there's a there's a lot of lessons to be learned um for the Christian in Star Wars if you have mm-hmm. the eyes to see what these these parallels are. Mm. Yeah. What did what did you think of this? So the problem with comparing Anakin to Jesus is that Anakin murders children, and by all accounts, Jesus never did that, right? Uh, obviously, Jesus was perfect. Anakin, very flawed. Well, Jesus let the little children come unto him, he and, did. He, and he blessed them. He did. Rather very than Different them. approach. It's, it's a, yeah. a bit different. Different it approach. Is, it is different. But what, what do you think of this? I was very, I have to admit, I was very excited when I, when I found this uh, passage in Romans 5 in this conflation of Adam and Jesus as being these, uh, like, this dyad, or uh, <laughs> lack of a better word, it, it, it's actually yeah, not yeah. Paul. Paul didn't know that terminology. It's not, but, yeah, it's not yeah. the appropriate word, but uh, this this concept that uh, Anakin is actually uh, a manifestation of Adam and Jesus, and both of their character arcs kind of fleshed into one. I think that's a very interesting thesis. I had never thought about it before in the sense, like it makes sense. Yeah. Um, that Jesus became sin and became cursed, you know, yeah. for us. I guess the one thing that that makes it still like not fully like compute for me is the fact that like I guess unlike unlike Jesus, Anakin didn't do what he did redemptively, purposefully. Mm-hmm. Like 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 Anakin did not descend into darkness so that he could save everyone. He descended into darkness. By mistake, effectively, mm-hmm. and then came out of it lost a kind of by mistake. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? But I totally see what you're what you're saying. I just think that that is and and, and praise God that the Star Wars does fall short of the truth in the Bible. Right. But I think yeah. that's you know. But I definitely think it's exciting to see and like again that we can help ourselves learn more about the the reality of of this if we think of humanity as one like imagine humanity as one entity you know like there is this atom that mm-hmm. that is is concluded in jesus yeah. which is awesome well think about yeah. if if we and uh, we'll move on but uh maybe maybe anakin is like a maybe jesus is the better and perfect anakin right but if you think about anakin uh going he the prophecy was he'll bring balance to the force and destroy the sith which it's just which eventually, of course, he did. Which eventually, of course, he did. Right? Eventually. Sort of. <laughs> so uh, it was a roundabout way, though, and there were evil things that happened. And while uh, the Sith and the evil force, the dark side, whatever, meant it for evil, the force meant it for good. Right? And so there is there is this uh, irony that the most evil person, you know, think about Paul, the the killer, the murderer, the the evil one, oh, right, yeah. uh, was actually an instrument for. Uh, good definitely yeah and that that element of like there's some kind of a like sovereign plan things that are meant to be and people are doing actions within the story and they don't even know how their actions are contributing toward this kind of inevitable fulfillment of the prophecy in a way that nobody expected that kind of thing i think that's in a lot of great stories and i think that that really comports with reality that that's that's in many ways how it works where god is kind of fulfilling his own prophecies but in ways that we don't expect um so i definitely i definitely see that there is something a little unfortunate about star wars of course which is it it has these kind of roots i think in some eastern mysticism and pantheism and things like that and i i think that 
un- unfortunately the the force is kind of this thing that seems to continually get redefined and we we never quite kind of nail down what it is because they seem to be kind of rethinking it as they continue the star wars um franchise but it seems to have this kind of duality to it of like oh, good yeah. good and evil and you know darkness rising and light to meet it and this kind of this kind of back and forth yin and yang sort of thing and i think that that is there's something kind of um, unfortunate to that when you're trying to kind of bring in these Christian themes where it's like, yes, you know, there is a prophecy and there is fulfillment and that sort of thing. But it's like, it's almost like we kind of just expect that there's always just going to be this sort of, there's always this light and dark and it's a balance and it's this thing going on. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to really see like yeah. the force as fully, you know, s- this sovereign yeah. goodness. I, goodness. Yeah. I do yeah. choose. I in in the face of that problem, I do choose you must to choose. Buy, yeah, I do buy into the interpretation of the force, which has existed in the Star Wars world at certain times and places. Yeah. That like the force, when balanced, is good, and and the dark side is actually a corruption of the force whereas like it, rather than a, than a more of a Taoist like yin yang mm-hmm. good and evil yeah, balance like evil but, must yeah. exist but good yeah, should yeah. exist too yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 fair point fair point uh that's not how the force works um <laughs> Thankfully. we're we're, we're going to move on okay uh feel free to throw in more star wars puns we can quote anything at any time uh now this is podcasting Woo! <laughs> force is strong yes. with this one uh, we're going to transition now to another very popular story. We knew that we were going to get this segment from Rich. At the proper moment. Yes. And now we have the proper moment. Rich, without further ado, uh, talk about um, Harold Potty or whatever your whatever your yeah, stupid it's, whatever it's, your it's, dumb it's story Potter. is. That Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Potter. Yeah. So Harry Potter. Um, what what a what a story. What a franchise. <laughs> um, I would like to. Um, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> what more uh, can I say? Yeah. I mean, no. Um, so I'd like to um, even kind of alter the way I'm going to start this based on what what Cody originally said. You're uh, altering the deal. Yeah, and I and I don't mean this in a combative way. I I just well, want to. This is debate, Richard. Yeah, and I just want to put this in in your guys' heads before I proceed with my sort of synopsis. I think that. Uh, like I said, I think Star Wars has awesome uh, parallels to to the the one true uh, and good story, and I think that's fantastic. But I think that the um, what what Cody so valiantly tried to do in comparing Anakin to Jesus, I think that Harry Potter, uh, the, the character, is a much clearer and stronger um, Jesus. So Anakin allegory. Anakin learned to walk so that mm. Harry could run, perhaps. Okay, uh, I mean. Who knows? Um, I mean, they both got a lot of angst. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Whereas um, Jesus does not. Yes. There's always, <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right. So um, let me discuss Harry Potter. I think Harry Potter um, is just a tremendously well-written story. Um, one of the the perks that Harry Potter certainly has, um, and I know Lord of the Rings can certainly counter this point, and I'm sure that Nate will do that, but uh, which is fair. But I think that a lot of what a lot of the lore and kind of expanded understanding that we have of the Star Wars universe, and to a certain extent the Lord of the Rings universe as well, comes from things outside of the main series itself, like you know. 
appendix information in Lord of the Rings or other writings that Tolkien had. And of course, uh, in Star Wars, the spinoffs and TV shows and novels and things like that. Um, while Harry Potter does have uh, an increasing library of apocryphal material fantastic beasts. yeah yeah which yeah <laughs> while that is the case um the harry potter seven books is just chock full of this lore and i will say i i've always had great respect for jk rowling in the fact that she um just created a very full narratively full symbolically full uh character filled world um yeah story within her primary texts and and uh, I, I just respect her for that so I, I think uh, in in reading Harry Potter uh, and viewing the films and going back and forth you know in within those those seven original stories eight films um, I, I've kind of distilled I think that this the series hinges on two main themes and then one kind of secondary theme or, or tertiary theme um, I think the number one theme is in the whole series is the power of ultimate sacrifice, which is there a more biblical a car crash? Point? Yeah, a car crash killed Lily and James yeah. Potter. But um, so and this is bookended in the very beginning and the very end of the story. Yeah. So we have um, Harry's mom, Lily, sacrificing her, herself for for him against Lord Voldemort at Godric's Hollow in the very beginning, setting up the whole story in motion with the scar and and Harry being an orphan and. And all this. And of course, we learn later on in the series that the reason why Harry is the boy who lived against the most powerful dark wizard of their time was because his mother's sacrificial love was a magic stronger than the killing curse that the head Death Eater could put forward. Mm. So awesome. Then, so, so we, we learn throughout the series that the power of sacrificial love is the most powerful magic there is. And in the, of course, if you haven't read or watched Harry Potter, you should probably stop at listening at this point and come back. But the, um, skip ahead. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, in the end of the story, we have Harry sacrificing himself, willingly going to death against the, the death eater dying. And then in the power of his sacrificial love, coming back to life, resurrecting shortly after, and then in his reborn form, breaking the power of death. Not forever in in the magic world, as it is in the Bible, but breaking the power of that sort of Satan figure of that time, Lord Voldemort. Just a tremendously clear gospel parallel, uh, in my opinion. Um also, I think even beneath the fact that like, you know, on, on the surface level, we're like, oh, Harry Potter died. He he went to go die in the forest and then he rose again. That's kind of like Jesus. Like lots of people have been like, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think below that is even as you as you look at that more, the fact that Voldemort explains to his followers that he can't just kill Harry. Harry has to come and die willingly. He has to come of his own accord and die. I think that's so cool. And then mm. the fact that his, um, his, and then of course we can get even deeper with the fact that like the, um, the sort of interconnectedness between Harry and the Dark Lord. Obviously, different Jesus is not inextricably interconnected with Satan in that same way. But I think that the um, 
the idea that Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. Jesus and Satan have known each other since before the dawn of human history, and there's sort of this interplay between Satan and Christ above and beyond what other humans understand, and I, I've always thought that was a pretty cool parallel as well. Um, okay, a secondary theme in Harry Potter beneath the sacrifice theme uh, is the destructive and death-dealing power of sin. We see this in every book, all throughout the books. Um, the clearest example is Lord Voldemort's creation of Horcruxes. So the way that he creates a Horcrux, it is this unspeakable dark magic that he finds um, when he's a later, a later student at Hogwarts. He confides in a professor... Dr. Slughorn, Professor Slughorn, and Professor Slughorn removes the memory from his mind because this thing is so heinous. And what Voldemort does is he has to kill something. He has to commit a mortal sin in order to sever his soul and break off a piece Mm. of his eternal soul and store it somewhere else in order in order to become eternal and unkillable exactly right, right. Yeah. and the idea that the theological implication of that it has always been so striking to me that like in order to and and, and of course Voldemort becomes Voldemort himself the person while he becomes unkillable because his soul is is split and if you kill one soul there's another while that is true he as an individual becomes weaker both magically and physically, each time he breaks his soul, and he becomes more corrupted, or as the book says, he becomes more defiled by dark magic every time. And this is one of the reasons why Voldemort, um, when he's Tom Riddle in the you know earlier times, he's a regular-looking man, and when he's Voldemort, he looks like a snake. He has He's deformed, and he looks this way because he has been defiled by dark magic over years and years. Mutilated. Yes. His lust for power. Yeah. And yeah. um But his resolve has never uh, been, been stronger. stronger. Yeah. Uh yeah. So many connections. But uh yeah, so I think so Horcrux is crazy. Also the um again the the desecrating uh defiling power of dark magic is seen throughout the story. Um when Dumbledore Professor Dumbledore touches a Horcrux in an attempt to destroy it. It kills the cells in his hand. So dark magic is death. Like there's, and and I think that's a great parallel to the Christian story. Sin is death. The wages of sin is death. They're inextricably connected. And I think that's cool that um, dark magic has that. We also hear about um, uh, certain dark spells having negative and eternal consequences on the person uh, in the story that takes the place of them uh, it being affected in their psyche. But I think that's a good parallel to us being, um, our souls being damaged and in need of being cleaned. Uh, another place that we see that really quickly, uh, the sort of this, this deathly power of dark magic, we also see this in other characters like Professor Lupin, uh, Gilderoy Lockhart, and the Malfoys throughout the series. They are good people who for whatever reason uh sort of dabble in the darkness and it permanently affects them it's not something that you can walk away from without being changed divine assistance exactly uh very cool and then a third theme i'm putting this i think those first two themes uh that i mentioned the ultimate sacrifice and the 
deathly power of sin. Both of those, I think, are primary themes that you cannot avoid throughout the series. I think a, a lesser theme, but a very prevalent one in the story, is the kind of healing power of friendship and community. And the fact that building a community is kind of essential to keeping yourself from that darkness. And the kind of the parallel as well of the fact that the those who are with Harry, and again, when I say Harry is kind of a Christ figure, he's far from, far from a Christ. I just want to make that clear. But, you know, as kind of the sal, sal, um, savior figure in the story, right? Those who are with Harry are, are willing to die for him. He's willing to die for them. They deeply love and care for each other. They support each other, you know, in this way. And people that follow the Dark Lord are constantly belittled and betrayed by the Dark Lord. And in a very satanic way, there are many scenes in the later books where the Dark Lord literally becomes his own Death Eaters accusers, where they're his right-hand person. And then when the situation flips, he will absolutely blast them out. You know, And, and I find that to be such a uh, realistic parallel uh, to reality, which is great. Um, particularly with Lucius Malfoy and, and other figures that have devoted their lives to the Dark Lord, and he could he literally wants to see them destroyed. Um, yeah, and then I also think that uh, other parallels that I think are pretty cool, uh, I, I see a pretty strong parallel between Dumbledore's army and the idea of the disciples in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I see that th- th- this is definitely more of a reach, for sure, but it's something that I came to. Um, I think that the... Uh, there's there's definitely a parallel between this idea of this like close knit group of people that are that have this understanding that the rest of the community does not, um, and also the fact that after the death of Harry in Deathly Hallows, um, his kind of constantly failing right hand um, in this in the figure of Ron and even more so uh, in the figure of Neville Longbottom, they both kind of step up to the plate mm-hmm. in Harry's absence in ways that they couldn't when he was there. And I see that reflected in people like Peter and John. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, and then also the fact that uh, the in the the aftermath of the Battle of Hogwarts, the like the apostles, the uh, twelve disciples became um, leaders out in the world, leaders of the early church in their own way, and they became you know bishops and whatnot. Um, the kind of main canon of Harry's friends who were his companions throughout the story go on to become orers and professors and headmasters of Hogwarts in their time. And so they kind of, in a, in a, almost a similar way uh, as like the kind of followers of Jesus go and like bring his will out into the world. Um, the kind of new magical world that emerges after the death of Voldemort is led by Harry's Dumbledore's army mm-hmm. um, and, and it's, it's just kind of a cool and I wouldn't even be surprised I've, I've read a lot of interviews um, where J.K. Rowling has said that she has been um, inspired by like her upbringing in the Episcopal Church and like the fact that she is like well versed in the history of like Anglican the Anglican Church and like the Episcopacy and and that sort of thing so I'm sure that she was influenced by that as well. So I don't think that that parallel I found is like completely in left wing, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah. And then of course the last parallel and I'll, I'll stop is the fact that I've always found a connection between the wizarding world 
um, we have these these people that have, uh, I'm going to say magic as a, I'm going to make that like a spiritual connection, right? So the people that are spiritual or have this supernatural connection live largely among the muggles or the regular people. And in some ways they are kind of elect uh, in, in some ways to have this supernatural connection. They live among the muggles, but they live set apart uh, from the muggles in, in almost every way. And I always found as a kid growing up as a Christian, um, this is so funny, especially because of the taboo that Harry Potter had in like the evangelical world for some time. Um, I always found comfort in the story of uh, characters like Hermione uh, who lived in the muggle world mm-hmm. when they were not at school, but they had this knowledge that the muggles couldn't possibly understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always felt kind of comforted in that way because as a Christian, I always felt like I have this this connection that people around me may not. And, and I, I want to share that with them, you know, and, uh, but sometimes you can feel like hidden, I suppose. So that's a cool connection. So in summary, and then I'll open the floor to you guys. I think Harry Potter, um, is, uh, I will contend that it is a very, very rich text. And I will say that it has the strongest and most direct gospel echoes of these three series. Rich, that was simply fantastic. It's beautiful. Not a fantastic beast. Decent word for them. A couple things I wanted to add, just because you you got me thinking, man. Uh, I love that there are moments throughout the story where Harry is a total outcast, right? So you've got this chosen one, this Christ figure. And uh, I I specifically remember, I think about, uh, you know, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? (laughs) Right. And... Ron's reaction to that, as well as most of the school, right? Hermione sticks by him. Uh, oh yeah, but his best friend thinks he's he, best. He yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and everyone is like, you know, you suck. Like yeah. that was so lame of you to do. And he's innocent, of course, but he's treated as a total outcast. You think about, uh, and that that's not the only time that happens. Well, right? and in in Chamber of Secrets, when they think that he's the one writing yeah. the air on the wall, are yeah. Slytherin, right? Yeah. And in Order of the Phoenix, when they think he's lying about Voldemort's return, right. and right, so he's often withdrew to lonely places, you know, by force or by will, but he, he's, he was a total outcast. And of course Jesus was abandoned. Uh, the other thing that yeah, I mentioned, like falsely accused. Exactly. Of course. Yeah. The other thing that, uh, I was thinking of as you're talking about the story. So I remember read, these were some of the few, I didn't love to read as a kid for pleasure. Right. But these were some of the few books that I, I just devoured these and no one compelled me to. I just I don't know why I started reading them. That's the story of so many people. Like, so many, so people. many people our age. Mm-hmm. If you ask them, they'll say, like, I didn't really read books, but I read Harry Potter. And that mm-hmm. was and, and that's a testament to the story. Seriously. It really is. Gripping. It, it, it was. And, like, my dad would get mad at me. He would be like, dude, you need to, like, get out of your room. And we're eating dinner now. Like, mm-hmm. you haven't even had lunch. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, dad, gobble a fire, dad. You don't understand what's okay. happening. My... Parents yeah. confiscated my copy of Goblet of Fire and made me go outside yeah. for a certain <laughs> amount of hours, and they would give it back. But it was like before we were binging like Stranger Things on Netflix. We were binging. I'm like, I got to read the next chapter. I got to read the next chapter. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's a uh, gripping book. So when I came home from school one day, and again I was late to the game a little bit. I was young, and uh, Harry. I think that I think the second one was in theaters or something. But I came home one day, and my parents had. VHS tape 
of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I had just, I think I was reading Prisoner of Azkaban at this point, but I was just like getting into Harry Potter and I'd read the Sorcerer's Stone book and I was so proud of myself. It was the first longest book I ever read. And I come home from school one day randomly and there's, they're like, hey, we know you loved that book. Here's the, the movie. And I cannot tell you how, pun pun intended, how magical that night was. I remember <laughs> just, they left, I don't even know where they went, but it was just me like two feet away from a TV in a totally dark room watching this. For, and I'd never seen it in theaters the first time I saw it. And I will never just forget. drinking butterbeer and watching it. <laughs> and and let's, let's give credit where credit's due. As far as movie adaptations of books oh, go, the Harry Potter movies are really stellar. And yeah, you can nitpick and say they cut this out, cut that out. But they're, they're really, for the most part, again, when you talk about other film adaptations of beloved stories, they did a good job. On the on the whole, I mean, Harry Potter had they had to cut out certain like filler elements of the story yeah. just simply because the books are so They're long. So long, but no, I would contend that no major event or like theme, with the exception of information about Neville's parents, they is did, removed. They did botch. They botched Goblet of Fire in the sense that they revealed who Barty Crouch was like too soon. I think oh, the book Barty does a Crouch. much <laughs> the, the book does a much better job of like revealing hey mad eye moody is but yeah. my, my point is we would have welcomed the movies like a hero if they had done a i'll be welcome back like a hero <laughs> nice but uh this is a whole other podcast <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so i watched this movie and i will never forget like watching them arrive at hogwarts in this dark room right i'm watching this in the boats you remember they get off the mm-hmm. train they get on the boat since the first years and so we really get the full experience of, like they're in their robes they're on the lake and we, the camera pans up to see Hogwarts for the first time lit up at night, this magical castle. And it was such a transportive experience for me. I was just like, like every other kid that was in this story, I was like, I want to get my letter. I want to I want go to Hogwarts so badly. I wish this were true so, so badly. My imagination was on fire. But as an adult looking back at this, like that, that fire that sparked in me, right, was... Because I have this longing for home, for for a place where uh, magic is real, right? And we're mm-hmm. totally fulfilled. And, like, we long for the Garden of Eden and to be restored. And, and we're special yes. in some way. Yes, that's, why we, something, that's why we love Harry so much. We want to be the chosen one as well. We want to be special, right. Which is, there's, you know, there's obviously a dark side to that and sin and pride. But I think what you're referring to is just like this. Anakin is the dark side of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, but I, I just... Uh, the last thing I'll say is, uh, unlike Star Wars, where they made this new trilogy, and after they made it, poured how many millions of dollars into making these movies, and after the fact, say, uh, we probably should have had a plan before we started this creative project. And you compare that to J.K. Rowling, who uh, was, yeah, sure, making stuff up as she went, but... Uh, like the seeds of like the direction she, I feel like she knew where she mm-hmm. wanted to get to before she even published the first book. Like yeah. there are seeds about the chosen one, the Horcrux that it all just yeah. looks so cohesive. And you compare that to the Bible, God who knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. Like he, he knows everything that will happen, would happen. And it, yeah, it's just a masterful storytelling. Yeah. And when, when JK Rowling was uh, accused at one point of, uh, she had no idea where the story oh. was going. They were like, oh, well, the story got really good in the end, but, like, you know, because the first books are kind of childish, which is 
a testament to her writing ability that she literally increased yeah. the quality of her writing as the children who were reading the books got older. Yeah. Like, and as the characters stroke. grew yeah. and became more complex when they're not 11, right? Right. Yeah. But um, but the fact that she uh, she knew, and there's mul- you know multiple pieces of evidence, especially in book one and two, that mm-hmm. she knew that what the final ending of the Deathly Hallows yeah. would be yeah. way yeah. at the beginning. Dude, it's it's mind boggling. Yeah. That's so hard to do. Especially because those pieces that for us as readers, those pieces don't fall into place until like the fifth or sixth book. Which which talks about the rewatchability, the rereadability of the story. Uh you you glean things you never saw before, which of course is just another parallel to you could read John three sixteen your whole life and, and it can still strike you. Uh so it is a good story, I do admit. Well done, Rich. Nate, anything mm-hmm. from you? Yeah, I mean, I must confess, I haven't finished reading all the books. I just finished Goblet of Fire recently. Um, I have watched all the movies, uh, so I do know the story, thankfully. And I've been really impressed, uh, really really impressed with the, with the books and how well written they are. And I think you did a great job of bringing out, you know, so many great themes that J.K. Rowling laced within them. And, and you know, she does claim to be a Christian, so I, I think that a lot of that is intentional, um, which I think is is uh, a great thing and and lends credibility to a lot of your arguments. And one thing for me that I remembered as I was reading is that, you know, Harry, of course, not the perfect Christ type, mm-hmm. and he 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 is quite angsty and and he does make a lot of mistakes and he can be selfish and he has this, all these flaws and you know what you'd expect you'd expect your main character to have identifiable character, yeah. yeah. Um, but he, he does have kind of this moral compass and, and it's, it's funny because when, when he's making the wrong decisions, I'm like, Hey, why doesn't this, why doesn't this guy like have a moral compass and, you know, make wise decisions. But then there are some times when that moral compass kicks in and he just like does the right thing in a situation where I, I almost don't want him to do the right thing mm-hmm. as a reader, you know, where like he wants to save everybody underwater during mm-hmm. the Triwizard Tournament. And I'm like, just go, just go, yeah, you know, yeah. win the tournament, you know, and he's like, I got to save everybody. And it's like, that's that's that kind of, you know, Christ-likeness that, that he has. Um, great, great moral fiber. Yeah, that, that he wants to to do the right thing in the in the face of evil. Uh, even when it's it's not popular, it's not going to benefit him, and that it, that like comes through at several key points throughout the story yeah. uh, in a way that is 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 pretty cool, and I think it's a great a great example for readers. Yeah, I also think just you know on top of that, I also think that it is so great that when Harry, you know, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, like Harry does not want to die. And I think that's such a good, um, I'm so glad that she, she made it that way because mm-hmm. there, there's many simpler stories of heroic sacrifice where the person like who's doing the sacrifice, you know, like bravely and courageously is like, ah, oh, this is what I must do. And they go and, you know, and th- there's not that like more nuanced feeling of like, like, like when Jesus said, father, if there's any way, take this cup from me, like. I'm sure that if there, if Harry had found that there was any other way except him being killed by Voldemort, he would have taken it, you know, but he knew that that was what had to be done to defeat him. It's incredible. 
All right. Uh, the last uh, thing we should move on, but I will say the great criticism here, very obvious. Uh, witchcraft is of the devil, and nobody should ever read this if you follow Christ. Mm. Uh, I don't believe that, but that was really popular sentiment. At oh, the, yeah. Like when these books were out, people were like, It's been said, yeah. Evil, right? So, uh, anyway, well done, Rich. Uh, Nathan, you have the floor. Take us to Mordor. Or just Middle Earth in general. Well, yeah, I don't know if I want to go to Mordor, <laughs> but um, I will take you to Arda, which is uh, Deep Tolkien's word for the Earth. So, so let's 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 move to the Lord of the Rings here, and. Uh, in, in in my argument here, I, it's I got I want, the word "lord" in it, so that's a good start. It does, uh, you know, <laughs> great. Unfortunately, Lord of the Rings refers to uh, Sauron, who's oh, kind of yeah, kind yeah. of a demon. That's kind um, of a problem, yeah. But uh, mm, this is falling apart on you already. But uh, <laughs> you know, Lord also refers to uh, you know Dark Lord of the Sith oh, in Star Wars and Dark, Dark Lord, Lord in yeah. uh, in Harry Potter. Oh, so gosh. I think we can throw that argument out yeah, entirely. At least, at least our stories say Dark before to clarify. <laughs> oh, he's called the Dark Lord in Lord of the, the Rings. The Dark as well. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Dark Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Dark Lord of the Rings rises. Uh, that would be a Nolan film. All right. So, so I want to show that you know th- this this story has the most gospel themes embedded in it, more than maybe something like Star Wars or Harry Potter. And and I think it's worth starting out to say that on the one hand, Tolkien himself never wanted his work to be seen as allegorical. And I think that this has been kind of well publicized that that he said, quote, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purposed domination of the author. Right, so so Tolkien was very C.S. much Lewis rolled his eyes at that. Sure, I mean C.S. Lewis, of course, <laughs> said his work was a supposal and not an allegory. But I think uh, I think Tolkien and many others would would beg to differ in, in in certain ways with with that. Anyway, Tolkien's referring to allegory as kind of this this conscious intent to create a story based on a single moral or political tale. It's this kind of one to one correspondence, this kind of this for that mentality along the lines of, you know, Pilgrim's Progress or, or the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, much as Lewis might protest about that comparison. But Tolkien did assent to kind of the applicability of his work, and he said that, that that was a good thing. And he even went further in this letter that he wrote to his confidant, Robert Murray. He said, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. That is why I have not put in, or have cut out, practically all references to anything like religion, to cults or practices in the imaginary world. For the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. So, interesting, right? Tolkien's saying, I don't want to create an allegory, but this is a consciously Christian Catholic work. Um, Not trying to create this kind of overt tale that mirrors the gospel at every turn, but he does want to create this myth, this, as he would call it, a fairy story. It's this metaphysical tale that leads to this glorious you catastrophe uh, in which, you know, his own, his own Christian faith is deeply embedded 
within it, not overtly, but with this subtlety and this kind of inevitability. Um, and, and that is, I think, exactly what we're, we're looking for in a story here, right? One that's not kind of this overt, direct connection, but one that has it embedded within it. And I think The Lord of the Rings has that. So, you know, at first glance, you might think, like, as, as you think about Lord of the Rings, there's no, you know, God figure, there's no religion, there's just a bunch of elves and dwarves and rings and, and stuff like that. So, you know, where, where's the gospel in that? Well, Tolkien, of course, has this whole universe of lore that he developed, and the Lord of the Rings is just a part of that. And, you know, Rich mentioned, like, ancillary material before um, that, you know, some, some things are kind of developed in the ancillary material and some things in the work itself. So I, I wanted to just mention some of the stuff in that other material, like the Silmarillion, that, that I think is is worth knowing about the kind of the, the background to this lore, just so you, you understand that background. And so, so here's some of that. You've got Eru Iluvatar, the supreme being of the universe and the creator of all existence. His name means the one. Mm-hmm. Now, Iluvatar alone could create independent life or reality by giving it the flame imperishable or the secret fire. And in 1966, Tolkien explicitly told his friend Clyde Kilby that the secret fire represented the Holy Spirit. So we have that. Um, Iluvatar created Arda, or the Earth. He created angelic beings called the Valar and lesser ones called the Maiar. Um, one of the Valar, named Melkor or Morgoth, rebelled against Iluvatar and wanted to rule the world for himself. Sound he's familiar? The big, he's the big bad. Indeed. And if you're thinking that, you know, okay, we have a Luvatar, we have the secret fire, okay, Father, Holy Spirit, where's the second person of the Trinity? Uh, well, in the story of Atharbeth Finrada Andreth, a character <laughs> states, they say that the one will himself come into Arda and heal men and all the marring from the beginning to the end. So we even have the second person of the Trinity referenced in Tolkien's mythology. So, so in, in the time of the Third Age... Are we in? Are we still pre coming of the son of? So, so that's we actually don't know. So okay. that's something that was kind of referenced in this in this story, but we don't know. Like, will that still happen? Did that happen? And and he doesn't develop that further. Sure. So, you I'm might. S- I'm sorry. I'm still waiting for something as sophisticated as midichlorians. Uh, but I'll I'll give you a chance. Okay. Well, okay. thanks. I, I appreciate right. that. Um. You might say, look, this is all ancillary material. You know, how does this count for the Lord of the Rings itself? Uh, Well, this is part of my point because I'm saying how, you know, Tolkien thought about all of this in his writing where he had this depth of lore behind it that very much precisely mirrors this triune God, creator, redeemer. Um, and yet, in the Lord of the Rings itself, he says that he explicitly stripped out, you know, these references to religion, trying to make it very, just kind of deeply embedded, something that's not explicit. And so I love that it's both of those things, right? In the background, the clear connection, the clear framework, foundational references to Christianity, yet in the story itself, kind of... Kind of subtle, kind best, of hard, best of both worlds. hard to see. Indeed, the best of both worlds, uh, the, the the best of, of Middle Earth. 
So you, you see these how these things play out. For instance, when Gandalf is fighting the Balrog, Gandalf and the Balrog are actually both Maiar, kind of these lesser um, beings that Iluvatar had created. And Gandalf says, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. So, you know, Gandalf is referencing this reality, right? That Gandalf is a servant of the secret fire, the secret fire of Iluvatar, uh, whereas the Balrog is this kind of dark Maiar who, right. who is actually of uh, Udun, which is part of Mordor. Um, so, so these things are referenced. They are part of the lore, but they're not kind of explicit. So that that's the background here, and if you think about the the tale of the Lord of the Rings itself, we we've talked a lot today about Christ figures, and I think if you if you think about how you know the gospel comes into the Lord of the Rings, um, Peter Kreeft in particular, the the philosopher Peter Kreeft has has looked into this and in, in the Lord of the Rings, and said that you you see really three Christ figures clearly in the Lord of the Rings. You see. Frodo, you see Gandalf, and you see Aragorn, and they're all kind of Christ figures in different ways. So, yeah. So rather than it being just a single figure, and we say, oh, that's kind of like a Christ type, you know, somebody like dies and rises again. You've actually got these three figures that that kind of exemplify Christ in different ways: prophet, priest, and king. So you have Gandalf. You have Gandalf as the prophet, Frodo as the priest, and Aragorn as the coming king. And so it's not a direct allegory, but it's these kind of typifying Christ in these beautiful ways. Um, So it's worth saying, you know, none of these characters are like the perfect character come to redeem the world, right? I mean, Gandalf sometimes like doesn't know anything. Gandalf's trying his best, but he doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient. He's not all powerful. Um, so, so he, you know, he has his flaws. Frodo, of course, an imperfect character, uh, ultimately fails to destroy the the ring of his own accord, and that has to have uh, help in, in doing that. And uh, you know, Aragorn, kind of unaccustomed to being in a leadership role, uh, generally known as a very honorable. Uh, character, but but he kind of has a lot to learn along the way. But all of them play a part in saving Middle Earth. So here here are some yeah. ways that that these characters kind of typify Jesus Christ. So Gandalf, kind of like a prophet, uh, like a prophet, Gandalf was sent by the benevolent angels of Middle Earth, the Valar, to work against Sauron, who's kind of like a, a demon of of Middle Earth. So he's sent to work against that, to, to, to prophesy, to help, to aid in, in, in the fight against Sauron. He's kind of a, a wonderful counselor, you might say, and, and he has, he's able to kind of go alongside people and provide them good help and advice and, and work toward the good. And, and perhaps the clearest thing with Gandalf, right, is that he has this death and, and resurrection, that he's with the Fellowship, he fights the Balrog, he, he saves the Fellowship from danger, and, and Gandalf the Grey dies. Uh, he, he dies, and he is then reborn. He, he, he is raised again, resurrected to new life as, as Gandalf the White. and Comes on a white <laughs> horse from, up, from high above. In, well, Sword. yes, he he is Ooh. indeed a rider on a on a silver gray horse, and um, 
he he comes back, I think, in, in a very interesting way, too. If we think about Jesus, you know, Jesus, when he was resurrected, in many ways, the same, right? Physical man to physical man. He, he ri- rises again physically, but yet there are also things about Jesus when he resurrects that are a little bit different. Jesus is, is kind of concealing himself to people in ways and then revealing himself in different ways. He, uh, he kind of appears in rooms when you don't expect him. Oh, Jesus is here. Wow, how'd that happen, right? Kind of different things. Jesus ascends into heaven after he's resurrected, just goes right up into heaven. Never did that before, right? That's, that's new. Um, and so, you know, Gandalf comes back. Similarly, you know, the, kind of the same but different he's still Gandalf but now he's Gandalf the white mm, and he has glorified. he he is glorified he has these new powers and he has the, this new sensibility about him and and kind of a new uh level of his calling so that's Gandalf the prophet you also have Frodo uh, Frodo kind of being the priest figure and we say the priest figure because you know Frodo is bearing the ring throughout the tale um, the ring is kind of the embodiment of like temptation and sin and evil. And so in a sense, like Christ, Frodo is bearing the weight of the evil uh, that, mm-hmm. that is, is, is growing ever heavier as he approaches the ring's ultimate destruction. Um, Frodo seeks silence and solitude often uh, during this quest. Uh, he, he kind of has this way of tears. Um, just, you know, Frodo goes through hardship after hardship. He's, uh, you know, abandoned by friends. He's betrayed. He's tempted. He's tried. Um, he even kind of has his own death and resurrection sort of moments where he's stabbed by the witch king and healed by Elrond. He's, uh, he, he sort of dies through Shelob's sting in a way. He has a sort of death there um, and then is revived and, and, and arrives in Mordor which is, again, representative of hell. Uh, Frodo has to kind of harrow through that to, to save those he Aragog loves. Aragog shows up, a little cross-universe action. I mean, you, you might say. You might say. One I, could say. I think, uh, you know, one, uh, one franchise maybe, maybe may have been inspired by another in that way. So you've kind of got Frodo as this, like, this sacrificial lamb, um, trying to trying to you know save the world and 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 carry this sacrifice so finally of course you have aragorn aragorn this is the easy one he's the coming king he's the the king king. he's the king who's going to return literally the third book return of the king uh he's the good king right he comes back uh, he he reunites Arnor and Gondor through his reign. He brings together, you know, the feuding of of the elves and the dwarves, embodied by this friendship of of Legolas and Gimli. Uh, kind of like how Christ, you know, bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles, right? These old divisions that are united in Christ. Uh, now there's not Jew and Gentile. There's only the Christian, the people under Christ. Aragorn, he's the king. He's the king who serves, who heals. The hands of a king are the hands of a healer. Great line in the Return of the King book. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't come in the way that people expect. He comes, he doesn't come kind of openly uh, saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm the king. 
he actually comes in the shadows. He's he's defending the Shire subtly and in the background with the Dunedain under the Hobbit's noses early in the story. He's living a humble life. It's not his time yet. And there's there's this motif throughout the books. You know, in, in the movies you kind of see it that he's he's got a little bit of that angst, right? He's like, Oh, I don't know if I want to be king. In the books it's like yeah. he's just like, It's not my time yet. It's not my time. Just like Jesus at the wedding at Cana, right? It's not my time yet. And, but as that time approaches, he rises to that and takes on that mantle. Um, so he's got this nobility, he's got this selflessness, and when the fullness of time comes, he takes the throne, and he's the good, the wise, and the righteous king. So you have all of these characters, Gandalf, Frodo, Aragorn, prophet, priest, king, who, look, none of them are perfect, None of them do everything themselves. None of them are supposed to be, oh, that's Jesus in the Lord of the Rings. And yet they all have these clear ways in which they they do typify Christ and they have these Christ-like qualities and have these elements of, you know, carrying the sacrifice, death and resurrection, the king who's to come, uh, that, that are so fundamental to Christ and to the gospel. And all of these characters together help to save Middle-earth from evil. Can I just say, I'm, I'm glad that you went last, because I feel like, mm-hmm. um, not that I'm conceding that that was the best case or anything, but I think that... Which, which it is. But, but I think that there was, uh, there was a... Uh, I really respect the nuance of your... Um, analysis and and pointing out that uh, there are kind of many shades and many sides to this uh, story and the way that we see the gospel in the story is maybe not as cut and dry because I've heard people make the argument in the past like oh well like Aragorn's like supposed to be Jesus but like he's imperfect like that doesn't really fully fit and then other people like no 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 Gandalf's Jesus he comes back from the dead Frodo Frodo yeah Sam come on he's a our, real well, our, our listeners are going to think both? our listeners are going to think that we compared notes and then ordered the stories accordingly. But it was the sovereignty of God that led us to share go Star Wars, Harry Potter, Indeed. Lord of the Rings. Because I think they got increasingly better uh, as we went. Like, wow, this thanks. is very cool. <laughs> well, Rich, you were after me. Congrats. That's, that's very kind, uh, <laughs> dude. Are you? Are you? Did we interrupt? Or are you wrapping up? That is hey, that it? Is that is that it? That's you the wrap do, up. We need you to take this. Uh, radio program more seriously nate all right we all prepared and you just Is that I, all you just that just, just feels, phoned it, it in it feels like you just kind of googled something real quick and then was just just read it right off well I, I i will quote a writer um michael jahoski says the lord of the rings isn't about the bible it's about what the bible is about <laughs> and i thought I that just, was a great summary yeah i just can't I, I can't compete with this just because of the the nuance that you played the best of both worlds argument that you have where this is more about the bible and less about the bible than all these stories mm-hmm. um the the thing that i was always like man people really love lord of the rings and i don't quite get it and i'm just very slowly growing in my love for it, especially the last 20 minutes, right? Like, I want to literally go home and watch Fellowship of the Ring. Maybe I should read the books. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry I haven't read them. But the thing that really blew me away when I that first clicked for me was probably, like, in this very room that we're in right now, like, a year or so ago. Yeah. Maybe more than that. But uh, it clicked for me that there's a reason the Hobbits 
and specifically Frodo, had to carry this ring. Mm-hmm. His burden was uh, heavy, right? And the ring makes you powerful, right? But it corrupts. And yeah. so who do, we need a weak vessel to carry this because if Gandalf put, why is Gandalf so afraid to touch the ring? Yeah, because he has such immense power. Right, and it's that, dangerous in his hands, yeah, right? On his hand, it's that very dangerous. if he would dangerous. take it, then but he, the humble, he could become some, something terrible. Yeah. Yes, the humble are heroic in this way, in, in the yeah. same way the Bible just constantly, you know, the, the meek shall inherit the earth, and yes. these are these people are heroic. You know, the, mm-hmm. the small, unsuspecting people behind the scenes, like uh, yeah. Rahab, like all these characters throughout the Bible. Just, uh, I loved, once I got that, I was like, why are the why do the hobbits have to carry this thing? They're like pathetic and weak, and like why why doesn't Gandalf just like fly this thing over there real quick? That's the yeah. point. That's the point, Cody. And so, uh, yeah. mad props, mad respect to that. I I just I mean after after you talked about like how because Rich and I spent considerable time trying to explain how well Anakin's not a perfect Christ figure. And you know Harry Potter's not the perfect Christ figure, but the <laughs> way it's like I got three of them, none of them are perfect. But hey, that's the point. And so, <laughs> ah, that's, but together, <laughs> yeah. So, Rich, anything from you, man? I mean, I think that uh, I rolled my eyes a little bit at the beginning of this whole podcast when when, you, when Nate started saying words we'd never heard before. No, no, no I'm saying way back at the beginning, okay, in the, during the intro because I do during think the early that, days. Yes, I do think during the first age, the first I do age. think that before uh, the dark times, <laughs> yes. Because I do think that in in this discussion, of course, it is difficult to to compare these things on an even plane, considering that J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, veritable genius, you know, like world builder, like the preeminent world builder of the modern age, right. you know, mm-hmm. tremendous knowledge of religion mythology such a knowledge such a force like use my knowledge i I beg beg you you. (laughs) yeah so we got like notice what we're quoting right now though and again again we are not and again don't misread me here i'm not saying that you know this ranking occurred in this order in any way i'm i truly am not but it is hard to have this you know this head-to-head fight between a series created by a genius Oxford professor, yeah. linguist writer. Right. Then we got J.K. Rowling, who wrote a series of excellent books, very well-written books. And then we also have... George a, Lucas. A, a, we, got, we, have, we have a film series oh, from hey, hey guys. the 1970s through 2019. Jarker Binks is my greatest creation. <laughs> There's a character y'all are missing in this discussion, and that's Jarker Binks. Yeah, exactly. Binks was... The Dark Lord of the Sith, but they hated him, so I had to rewrite the script. Count Dooku was available, but um, but that being said, I yeah. love all these series. I really do. I mean, any time you guys listen to our discussions, okay. Have we discussed Lord of the Rings in an entire episode on here? No. Have we discussed the Star Wars film twice? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes so, we have. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, so so uh, there's that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth saying like there are incredibly moving things in all in all of these series, right? I mean, I think about we we talked about Luke tossing his lightsaber away mm-hmm. in Return of the Jedi, incredibly moving. Harry Potter, I mean, Lily and Harry's sacrifice. I think those those sacrifices, of course. There's even some stuff with Snape that's that's pretty moving. Near the we end. totally didn't um, give Snape his props. Didn't, yeah, didn't, it's okay. didn't give him his 
his proper moment. Uh, but, uh, but, and then, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you're talking about the hobbits, right? Meek, mild, uh, unexpected, right? Yeah. You know, we see in scripture, God's always using the unexpected yeah. people, yeah. the people that, that you wouldn't think would be the heroes. Um, and then they, the hobbits mm-hmm. are going to shake the fortunes of all. And, and that's this incredible story of Lord of the Rings. And, you know, at, at the end, I think just beautiful in in Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Return of the King, uh, everyone bowing to the mm-hmm. hobbits at, at the end. It's that, you know, you have these physically first, first shall be last, physically last. short beings yeah. uh, that nobody ever cared about until now uh, who who have, have shaken the fortunes and, and, and saved Middle Earth. When um, Aragorn says, you bow to no <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know. Beautiful. Be- beautiful. And, uh, and, and how can you, how can you not weep, uh, a, t- a tear of joy at, at these beautiful moments? All, uh, all incredible series. Mm. Well put. I don't even know if I, I'd almost want to end on that. I don't even know if we need to choose a winner. I, again, I feel based on, uh, if, if we're sticking with the criteria that we laid out at the beginning, I think we did it right in order. Uh, three, two, one, uh, but that—that's my opinion. I—I uh, I will not tender a, a winner here. I think that's okay. uh, fair enough. Star Wars, personally, my favorite story. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is my favorite story personally because of the nostalgia and the the moment of history we're in and all of that. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But maybe if you read Lord of the Rings, yeah, I need maybe to read that. It. I'm sorry, but man. That's okay. I failed you. I'm still working on Harry Potter. I have so. failed you. <laughs> um, boys, how do we feel? We wrap this thing tired but it was good <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right let's <laughs> just fall asleep here uh this is good uh friends thanks for tuning into this episode of forefront 360 if you enjoy this show leave us a rate and review we hope you become one with the force pass your owls and sail to the gray havens until next time keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art